uh, our desire is to come to his throne as much as possible and to uh, get under the gospel and be discipled and disciple others. And that's why we're here this evening. And this evening we're gathering around the holy throne of God. Even though we can't see him, he's here with us. And he is holy. He is almighty. He's to be revered. And so I invite you, if you're able to stand, let's worship our holy God this evening.
God, we are here gathered in your presence. You are holy and we honor you and give you reverence this evening. And we thank you that you are a God that even though you are holy, you allow us to approach. In fact, you invite us into your presence to fellowship with you. And we thank you that your faithfulness never changes. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. You never change. You never fail, oh God. True are your promises. True are your promises. You never change. You never fail, oh God. So we raise our holy hands to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come. Yeah, we raise our holy hands to praise the Holy One who was and is and is to come. Why is your love and grace? Why is your love and grace? You never change. You never fail, oh God. So we Whose glory taught the stars to shine 
Perhaps creation longs to have the words to say. But this joy is mine. With a thousand hallelujahs, we magnify your name. You alone deserve the glory, the honor, and the praise. Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. Who else would die for our redemption? Whose resurrection means our rise? There isn't time enough to sing of all you've done. I have eternity to try With a thousand hallelujahs We magnify your name You alone deserve the glory The honor and the praise Lord Jesus, this song is forever yours A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. Hallelujah. 
open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 as uh, we continue our study and our journey through the Bible. We had a great time last week with the Iwana kids and we're back at it uh, in studying God's Word. Paul has been writing in his letter to the church of Ephesus and if you were to take the, the letter of Ephesians, you could break it up into two categories. In the first three chapters, it's the theological aspects and then the, the last three is all about uh, how to put into action what you know and what you believe. And so as we take a look at chapter 5, chapter 5, and the way that Paul writes is, is he writes in such a way that it's kind of like one continuous, you know, just ongoing discussion. Within, and it's really hard to, to, to make these breaks, but as we take a look at 5, uh, we're going to be taking a look at behavior. So... The question I have that kind of leads into this is, does your behavior as a Christian matter? Some say yes, some say I don't know. Absolutely it does. Your behavior as a Christian really does matter within this. And, and Paul is continuing to teach and instruct the church on how they should behave. And so by extension, we're learning on how believers should conduct themselves as new creations. And you've got to keep in mind the audience. These, these Christians that are living in Ephesus are living in a very ungodly, idolatrous society. The, the temples are around them, the idols are all over them, there's paganism surrounding them, They're, they've come out of paganism, they only know one kind of lifestyle, and that's, that's really paganism and idolatry and, and all of this licentious, immoral living, where temple prostitution was highly accepted, and drunkenness was accepted in the norm, self-centeredness was accepted in the norm, and all of these different things. And so Paul is trying to instruct these Christians on how to not live how they used to live. But as they're being called out of their old way of life, he wants to give to them both the theology and the orthopraxy, or what they should be doing as Christ followers, and the behavior. And ultimately, that's true for us. Our behavior needs to be lived in such a way that we're pleasing to God. 
You hear me often say, God, help us to do the things that make you smile. We want God to be able to smile when He looks at us. And as we take a look at this account, we're going to see this, this reflection. Because as you live as a Christian, you actually reflect to the unbeliever who God is. The unbeliever, the unregenerate, the one that doesn't know God, looks at you and says, okay, I'm going to judge your God by how you live. Now that's a heavy burden, isn't it? If you were the only representation of who Jesus is, is there enough of Jesus in you for someone to come to faith and be saved? And it's a challenge. And so our, our behavior really does represent God. Have you ever heard the proverb, like father, like son? Yeah, it, it, it was an old saying, like father, like son. And, and for some, it could be a compliment. But do you know where it really started? It really wasn't like father, like son. It actually is a verse in the Bible, like mother, like, or like, uh, mother, like daughter. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 44, it says, Behold, everyone who quotes the proverb will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, Like mother, like daughter. And it really was a proverb that was talking about Ezekiel in Ezekiel about people returning to their original sin. And so what would happen is they would, the, the, the daughters would return to their sin just like their mother within this. And so it's, it's the challenge. And the challenge is for these new believers to abandon their faith and the transformation of a new life and to backslide and get back into the old life. Backsliding is, is a very dangerous, dangerous thing in the Christian journey. Because if you're, not, if you're not pushing forward, you're sliding backwards. Our old nature is very, very strong. And so the key to a, the believer's behavior is really to do this. Abandon your earthly father who is who? the devil, and learn how to be like your heavenly Father, who is God. And to really make that your model within that. We're going to be celebrating Father's Day on Sunday and doing a, I'm doing a study on the prodigal son, but from a different kind of twist. We're actually going to learn some, and, and you should always be learning something new every time. And as I've been working on the study this week for the prodigal Son, I, I really understood something different about the father and how he engages with both sons. Very, very interesting. You've got to come to hear about it. But at any rate, a little shameless plug there. I want to encourage you because one of the things is you're a reflection of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That is a command. In this day and age, as, as Christ follows, we've got to re realize that behavior is essential to evangelism. How you behave really does reflect God above. And so we're going to take a look at these lifestyles. So let's just jump right in. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, the lifestyle of the, of the believer really must be based on purity in verses 1 through 6 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ has also loved you 
and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather give giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral, impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So the first things he says here in verses 1 and 2 is, it's a call to imitate God. If you notice, he says, therefore be imitators of God, beloved children. And that word imitator is to mimic. The word therefore really refers back to the previous two verses of 31 and 32, where he, he talks to him and he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander all be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, based on what Jesus has done for you, based on the forgiveness of sins, we have this obligation, it's a spiritual obligation, to imitate God as new believers, as children within this. We've been raised from dead to life. You have a new father. And so you want to honor that new father in the lifestyle that reflects him within this, this new lifestyle that reflects Christ. And so in 31, he says, get rid of, or the put-offs. Put off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. It's almost as if you were to take off this shirt or this jacket. You take off the behavior. And then there are put-ons. What should I put on instead of bitterness? Be kind to one another. Instead of wrath and anger, I should be tenderhearted. And instead of the slander and malice and all of these things, I should be forgiving one another. To what extent? Same way that Christ has forgiven us. You think about this and you say, well, to what extent should I forgive somebody that's wronged me? To the same extent that Christ has forgiven you. But, Carrie, you don't understand what they did. Really? You want to have that conversation with Jesus? And he's forgiven you. Well, you don't, I, I, God hasn't called me to be a doormat. Be a forgiving doormat. Do whatever you got to do to release that. Be kind, be tenderhearted and forgiving to the same extent the unconditional forgiveness by which you have been forgiven. And by doing that, you're imitating God. The word imitate is mimic. The Greek word is mimetea. And it literally means to model the character as an imitation of. To model the character as an imitation of. In other words, you are to mimic every action that God has demonstrated towards you within that. It's, it's interesting how many people claim the name of Christ. But if you're going to claim the name of Christ, then you need to live up to that name. Because a Christian literally means Christ-like. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christian, but do they look like Jesus? 
Do they act like Jesus? Do they claim that name? And, and so when we think about the action, well, what is the action? God made it really simple. Love. That's all i got to do? <laughs> Put it into practice and then we'll talk. To love as Christ loved. How did Christ love? He laid down His life for you. Sacrificial love. Agape love. Agape love is the highest form of love that ever exists. It is a love that says, I want best for you regardless of the cost of self. I want what's best for you. It's a supernatural love that is led by the Holy Spirit. It's a divine love that only comes from God and it's an attribute of the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in you to be able to love it. And I can tell you this, every single person in this room or watching online struggles with this. We do because we're human. But our humanity doesn't give us an excuse not to love because the Holy Spirit dwells in us that empowers us to love. And so we have to say no to self and yes to God. And so Paul is calling the believers to walk worthy of their calling, Ephesians 4.1. To walk different from the world, Ephesians 4.17. To walk in the light, Ephesians 5.8. And to walk in wisdom in Ephesians 5.15. The word walk, it's an interesting word. It literally means how you conduct yourself in your daily living. You all are pretty good when you come here. But what happens out there? What happens in your homes? What would it be like if I had a little GoPro camera that just followed you all over the place and watched? We look at this. It's how you display this walking is how you conduct your life. It's the sacrificial living. Jesus' sacrifice was based on love. For God so what? The world. That He gave. His only begotten Son. He, Jesus gave Himself in life for you. He obeyed the Father for you. Think about what does Jesus gain by dying on the cross, sacrificing Himself for your sin? What does He gain? You. You say, well, I'm a pretty good treasure. You are. And that's why He gave Himself for you. Because he sees beauty in the ashes. He sees beauty in brokenness. He sees you perfected in eternity already. But to get you there, he has to die in your place to remove the sin separation. He sees you complete. It's a love that doesn't look on the exterior, but looks at the interior and the potential. And within this, and when we obey God in loving others the same way that Jesus loves us, Paul says that we are, in verse 2, a fragrant aroma. I got to thinking about this idea of a fragrant aroma. How do you get fragrance out of something? You have to crush it. You have to smash it. And so you think about this idea of rose petals or anything else. It has to be smashed, crushed, in order to release that fragrance that's there. And we think about this fragrance, and, and, and God likes to smell you. He does. 
in, in Leviticus chapter 5, we see a number of different sacrifices. And, and throughout that, it is commanded by God that these offerings and sacrifices are sent up as a burnt offering. But Moses, in writing Leviticus, he says that it's a sweet aroma unto God. And all of these sacrifices were there. What, was God really pleased by the, the burning of these animals and these things? No, it's the heart. It's the heart that comes and, and sacrifices and gives. And we think about Jesus being the sin bearer as he died for us. And the aroma, the fragrance of Jesus' obedience to death. When you make God smile, he takes a big whiff and goes, Yeah, good job. And I would rather be a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God than a stench. Because when you disobey and you start getting into the sinful thinking, it's stinking thinking. And, and there's a lot of stinking thinking that goes on. But when we're obeying God and loving Him, we, we are giving off this aroma just like Jesus did. Who in verse 2, He sacrificed Himself as a sweet fragrance to God. So how do we do that? Well, we avoid the perversions of the world. Some of you here or some of you online may get a little bit upset with me tonight, but that's okay. Because I didn't write this. God did. And He calls these behaviors out. If you look at verses 3 and 4, He says this, But immorality or impurity, greed, and so on with the list, should not be named among you. Whatever God ever makes, understand this, when God makes something, Satan will create a counterfeit. God will create good. Satan does what? Evil within this. And what does he do? He perverts all the good things that God makes for evil purposes within this. We think about love. Love is selfless. It's sacrificial. But counterfeit love is self-centered and it's immoral and it's impure within this. This love that he says here, this is the secular love that is driven by immorality. And impurity within this. The world kind of love only seeks itself. It doesn't seek the benefit of the other. You cannot use the word love, worldly love, in the same way as agape. And so he says this, it's, it, we should avoid immorality. That word immorality is an interesting word. You're going to know, you're going to recognize it in Greek. The word here for immorality is pornea. Do you know the word? We get our word what? Pornography from it. It is, it is a word that brings people into bondage. It speaks of the immorality, the selfish act. It is a perverted form of love. Pornography is a perverted form of love. It is perverted what God has meant to be pure. Sexual sins are a perversion of what God created. And their sins against God and their sins, pornea, are sins against divine love within this. And we think about how many people who are under the bondage of immorality. They're under the bondage of, of pornea because they lack self-control. And they travel down through life in, a, in debauchery. And we see it all the time, don't we? 
This person was arrested for this. This person was arrested for that. And then child pornography and all of these different things that are all part of it. And this new thing, I was listening to the news the other day, and this new thing about AI. And how AI is so dangerous as it pertains to this. People, and they were, they were estimating on how bad it could be that child pornographers could create AI pornography, child pornography within this. Debauchery. It's the loss of self-control and it leads to impurity and everything that's unclean and filthy and rotten. The immoral thoughts, the passions, the ideas, the fantasies, the behaviors that manifest themselves in impurity. I don't have to tell you guys, you can look on the news and you can see over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years the debauchery and how the decline has taken place. And where does it come from? Pornea. Immorality within this. And what man, sinful man has done is he's taken divine love that was designated to be between a husband and a wife and he's made it immoral. And so Paul says you stay away from the immorality, the impurity, or greed that leads to the immorality and impurity. In Ephesians 4.19, we'll read it later, he says, and, or we've already read it, it says, And these having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality in the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. We think we have it bad now. You know the church of Ephesus was in the midst of Everything that we're going on, that that we see now. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And the things that would go on were just horrible in the Grecian culture. But God created a sexual relationship between a man and a woman as a means by which the man and the woman would come together and be bound together. Two genders, one unique union. One man, one woman, uniquely fit together to become one flesh. Only two. Jesus would say in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, and he answered, he said, Have you not read, he who created them from the beginning, he made them male and what? Female. And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer to be two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man redefine it. Let no man break it. This is a, this is a mystical union that we're going to cover at the end of the chapter tonight, by which we stand. Do not let anyone deceive you in this. Don't let anyone twist or pervert what God had established. We are in the thick of it right now, where people are trying to create multiple genders and multiple ideologies and all of that. And you have my permission to call them a liar to their face. Based on biblical standards. And if they don't like it, they can take it up with God when they see Him. But they're not going to like it then. So, we think about this. What else does Satan do? Not only does he pervert the Word of God, but he perverts the drive, the sexual drive of humanity 
has become sexual perversions. And it perverts love. Perverts love. The true loving relationship is always, the agape relationship is always based on the best for the other. Christians that do not behave in that realm are operating from a worldly purview. So we have to check ourselves. Just as Paul is telling the Ephesians, check themselves. Check how you love. Check how you love your spouse. And, and are you loving them with agape love? In the same manner, God created speech to be able to display love. This, this, this verbal language of love. Words of affirmation, edification, exhortation, and love. God created the human language so that we could love one another. He did not create the human language so that we can treat people like trash. And the garbage mouths that happen and the stuff that comes out. Paul says here that there should be no filthiness, silly talking, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather they give thanks. We need to be able to do that. We think about all of this this. Filthiness, the degrading and disgraceful obscenities. Satan's counterfeit to speaking love is using the language of, to, to break people down derogatory. Paul says, if you are going to look like Jesus, talk like Jesus. Speak love. We should never use curse words at one another. That's not loving. We should never slander someone. Or we should never use disgraceful speech. In, in fact, this idea of, of embarrassment, this disgrace, this filthy talk, silly talk, coarse jesting, dirty jokes, mindless speech, it literally says. And it's interesting, this word silly talk, translated in Greek, is moros. It's where we get our word moron from. So the next time somebody is telling you a dirty joke, Smile at him and go, uh, you're a moron. Biblical. But that's the reality. But we get caught in it. And the, the word, in fact, it, I wrote it down because I thought it was so cool. It's moro lage. Moro, meaning dull or stupid, moron. Lego, not like the Legos you step on when your kids left them out in the living room, is speech. And so we need to check ourselves. As Christians, do we fall into that category? Sure. Why? Because we are sinners that are saved by grace, that are coming out of an old lifestyle, an old nature, and this stuff still wants to come out. And when you get angry, the words come out. When you get frustrated, the words come out. When you're hanging around a bunch of people in the world, like I do at the fire department, and I hear this stuff, I have to walk away. I hang around that stuff, then the, those words get into me, and then all of a sudden I feel justified in doing it, and I have to get out of there. i got to check myself. But the difference is the unbeliever doesn't know any better. The believer does. And so within this, Christians need to be known for the difference of their lifestyle and their speech from the world. You need to look like Jesus. You need to talk like Jesus. You need to love like Jesus. And then by the, the actions, 
people will come to know Jesus. Is it important? Yeah. Because there's a punishment for this lifestyle. Verses 5 and 6. For this you know certainly that no immoral, impure person, covetous, who is an idolater, has an inheritance to the kingdom of God. Are you saying, well, Carrie, what does that mean? If I cuss somebody out, if I, did I lose my salvation? No. But he is saying that there is a distinction. Those that live this way will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they're not saved. It's their, it's their lifestyle. Paul is restating the truth because the, the Ephesians needed a line in the sand. They needed to be out of the world of Ephesus and the paganism, and they need to be out. They need to be a distinction. Is it hard to tell Christians today from non-Christians? It is. We need to live different. And we need to understand, number one, God will not tolerate sin. He can't. He's holy. Sin separates us from God within this. And therefore, God cannot tolerate sin. Why? Not only is God holy, God hates sin because it's sin that separates man from God. What would it be like if God would condone sin and say, well, you know, I'm going to grade on the curve today. It's okay. Let's compromise. No. God is a holy God. And to be clear, Paul says that no immoral, impure, greedy, greed-driven person who worships anything above God will ever have an inheritance of the kingdom of God because it's their lifestyle. They're habitually immoral, habitually impure, habitually greedy, idolatrous. They have no part in the kingdom of God because they don't want any part of the kingdom of God. He's stating a fact. And so as God's children, we've been given this new nature. Get this. God's holy nature. What does that mean then? That means if you're a Christian and you go back to the old lifestyle, you're doing it by choice. And you're doing it out of flat-out rebellion because you know better to do it. You're given this, this new nature because you're regenerate. If you take a look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, says this. No one who is born of God practices sin. Pretty clear statement, isn't it? Why? Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Now by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother is of God. Is there any question? Pretty clear. The one who practices sin is not of God because he's not born again. The problem is we have this demonic delusion. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Does Satan want to deceive? Sure. Sure. We have this problem with gender delusion, they say, that's going on. You know what that is? A lie from the pit of hell. It's deception. We have this concept of, well, as a Christian, I can do this, this, and this, and this, and this. But the Bible says you can't. Yeah, but that's okay. The Bible's not relevant for today. 
It, because God really loves me, and God's a God of love, and God really wants me to feel good about myself, is the argument within this. That God wants you to be happy, to live as you please. Another deception of Satan. God's not really going to judge sin. God's not going to exclude people from His kingdom. Another argument and deception. God's Word is full of errors. We really don't have to listen to God. I know God. He'll just tell me what to do. I don't need the Bible. Or there's... God wants me to do whatever feels right. I don't need organized religion. Have you ever heard that one? All demonic deceptions. Why? Because Satan wants to keep you blind. The problem is, God's divine wrath is poured out on all evil. God is a holy God. And He loves people enough to have a line in the sand that says this is right and this is wrong. And if you do the wrong, it will kill you. Therefore, there needs to be a judgment. We've gotten into this place in our society today where we want kids to express themselves and to feel good about themselves. So we don't discipline them anymore. I'm sorry, Johnny. You know, Why don't you tell me how you feel about the fact that you just took a baseball bat to your sister's head? You were feeling angry? Were you feeling sad? No. No, we don't do that. We get to a place where we need to confront what is wrong and what's wrong is wrong. Within this. We need to understand that Satan wants to keep people in a condition of disobedience and God's divine wrath is poured out against sinners in disobedience. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8-10. to 10 says this, Paul, in writing to the church, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at all among who have believed for our testimony to you it was believed. In other words, there is a judgment day and a day of reckoning. And throughout the Old Testament, there was plenty of times where God says, enough is enough. Where He's had enough. For example, you can read about it later. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. The wrath of God was poured out on Israel because they perverted love and they, they were having sexual relationships with the Midianites, what they never should have been doing. So what did God do? He brought on the death of 24,000. Jews. 24,000 Jews. Why? Because they broke the law. Why? Because God didn't want them to have sexual relationships with the Midianites, the Gentiles, the pagan idolaters. Why? Because of love and sex, they would attach themselves to these idol worshipers and they would become idol worshipers. And God says, no. We're not going to do that. Paul declares the wrath of God on those that Pervert love. Romans chapter 1, 26 to 32. It's a rather long passage. One that you're probably familiar with, but listen to it carefully. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. By the way, as I read this, think about how relevant it is today. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for which was unnatural. 
And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, there's that word greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're full of gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I know that never happens today. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they knew the ordinances of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, and this is the kicker, but also give heartily approval to those who practice such things. Is that happening today? We have laws that are being passed that are wholeheartedly giving approval to such kind of things. As a Christ follower, what should you do? How should you live? Put it all away. Stand up against it. Avoid these things. Abstain these things. Abstain these, from these sins and abstain from these perversions and call them out. Paul goes on in verses 7 to 14. He said, Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as the children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn... What is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of such things which are done by them in secret. But all things becoming visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine and dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Paul says, how should we behave? First of all, we should avoid the sins in our own personal life and avoid joining yourself with practice these things as a lifestyle. If you want to stay pure, stay out of the mud. If you want to stay clean, don't go wallow in the dirt. If you want to stay focused and, and reflect the Lord... Don't join yourself with the ungodly. Or as Paul would say, be partakers of them. Don't join yourself with evil. But why? Because you've already been joined with Christ. Paul says you were formerly dead. You were formerly under the prince of the power. You used to be that way. But now you are light. You're a different person. You are not who you used to be. You're under a new authority, new kingdom. And instead of imitating the world, imitate Christ. 
Here's the danger. This demonic deception says, you want people to like you? Fit in. You want to be a good witness? Go hang out with them. Be a friend. Well, you can be a friend and you can, you can be with these people, but not partake of their behavior. Do you remember Jesus was accused of what? Hanging out with drunkards and sinners. But was Jesus a drunkard? No. Was he sleeping with prostitutes? No. He was bringing the truth and light into every situation that was there. Why? Because God's light. And as children of light, we need to do that. If you, if you think about it, God is light. He's the light of salvation, Psalm 27. He's the, the light that provides guidance for our lives, Proverbs 119. Jesus says in John 8, 12, he spoke to him, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will what? Have the light of life. So, well, Carrie, how is it that I can, I can share the gospel with them? It's really simple. Be the light in a dark place. Don't compromise. Share the truth with love in a manner that draws people to understand that what they're doing is, is inappropriate. Instead of being a, a chameleon Christian that blends into the scene, live as light and bring light into the darkness and the fruit of righteousness. You cannot, and hear me clearly, you cannot have one foot in righteousness and one foot in sin at the same time. It's either one or the other. 1 John 1, 5-7 says this, This is the message we've heard from Him and announced to you. God is light. In Him there is how much? No darkness. And if we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Note, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us or continues to cleanse us from all sin. You can't play both sides. You can't. Because what ends up happening is the unbeliever will look at you, Christian, who's living in the world and feel justified in their condition. It's not so bad because Carrie's here. It must be okay because Carrie's doing it with me. No. You can't. Paul says in verses 11 to 14, to expose the deeds of darkness. Satan has blinded the minds of the people in this world. And they are walking around as blind. They don't see the light. And the agents of Satan are wanting to keep people in this darkness. And they're calling what is evil good. Is that happening today? And they're calling what is good evil. Is that happening today? And everything is upside down. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substituted darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe. Whenever God says woe, is that a good thing? No, woe means like stop. Woe means something's bad is about to happen. And Paul declares as believers, we need to expose the secret, secret, perverted thoughts and actions 
and condemn them as evil. We've been asleep at the wheel for way too long. And as Christians, we need to call it out. That is sin. That is not righteousness. We cannot be in a cocoon and just try to get by. We can't partner with sin and we cannot partner with a perverted life. I've been praying as the elders and many people have for revival. But you know where revival actually begins? It's not in the unbeliever coming to faith. It's in the believer coming back to faith. In the believer being re-energized and becoming on fire. That God would revive. The word is revive. To take something that is about out and breathe life back into it. Paul would write to the Corinthian church to deal with this perverted life that was happening in Corinth. Corinth was so messed up. So messed up. That they had mixed all the paganism into Christianity and they were having love feasts and orgies and communion and all of these things all at one time. They were messed up people. And Paul's having to correct them because they were so proudful about how open-minded they were. Paul would write to them this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, uh-oh, or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any, note, so-called brother, if he's an immoral person or covetous or idolater or rival or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What is the rebuke? You, Christian in Corinth, are not to fellowship with someone who calls himself a Christian who's living like the world. Why? Because you're condoning their behavior. If you really agape that person, if you really love them, you're going to tell them. What you're doing is, is, is vile, it's perverted, it's against God's Word. You're light, but you're living like you're in darkness. I can't hang with you. I had a, my best friend years and years ago. A lot of years ago. Best man at my wedding. And he was living in sin. And we had been friends for a really long time. And he had been doing some things that were super inappropriate. And I had to come to him. And I wrestled with this passage. And I had to come to him one day and I said, look, brother, I can't hang out with you anymore. I, 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 I can't condone what you're doing. I can't, I can't do this anymore. So, when you decide to get your life right with Christ, I'd love to have fellowship with you. But I feel like I'm an excuse for you to be able to do what you're doing. We were separated in our friendship for five years. He came back to faith. And he came back to me and he says, you know, I was really mad at you. He said, but that was, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because I lost my best friend. And it nagged at me. Those words nagged on me. And the Holy Spirit gave those words to him. But it took five years. He's hard-headed. 
five years to come back. Exposing sin is the most loving thing a Christian can do. Exposing sin is that, that action of love because what you're exposing is the sin that's separating them from God. If someone was an alcoholic and they were destroying their life and you went to them and you said, hey, you know, I know life's tough. Would that be very loving? Or would it be more loving saying, look, at what you're doing is killing you. And it's killing every relationship around you. And it's going to destroy you. Because you're an alcoholic. That wasn't very loving. Oh, no, it was. It's the most loving thing you can say to somebody. Because tolerance means acceptance. Intolerance declares unacceptance. Tolerance says, I accept this. Intolerance says, I do not accept this. And God is very clear with that. There is no such thing as being a silent witness. By definition, what is a witness supposed to do? Declare truth. You put somebody on a witness stand that's supposed to declare truth about a case, and they don't say anything, are they a good witness? Or a poor witness? Well, they'll know by my actions. Well, if you're always hanging around and you're not saying anything, are you really a witness at all? Absolutely not. True love is telling the truth. And true love does not mean you have to accept everything. And true love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth within that. So question, how do you confront a sinner? How do you, as Paul says, this is the behavior that's there, and you see this behavior according to this, and you're in Ephesus, and you go to a brother, how are you supposed to confront them? First with humility. Humility. There before... There but the grace of God go I. With sincerity, if you really want to talk with them and restore them, you're doing it because you truly love them, not out of pride or arrogance or pointing the finger. You're doing it from biblical love and biblical truth. You're following Matthew 18, as Jesus would give this, on how to confront somebody Verses 15 to 17, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact would be confirmed. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. By the way, that's not to gossip, but that's so the church would pray. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which means what? Someone who is unregenerate. It doesn't mean kick him out of the church. It just means that you, that you need to treat them as one who is unregenerate. They need to come back to Jesus. They need to know who Jesus is. Because the, bol- the whole goal of biblical confrontation is restoration. If you confront somebody and you're doing it biblically out of arrogance, you're wrong. The whole point is restoration. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, as as Paul would quote this in verse 14, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord risen upon you. In everything, bring out the light. Why? Because you want to bring Christ and let Christ shine. 
and that power of the resurrection. So we've talked about how to deal with the other. What about you? Oh, now we're going to get personal. I'm good there. We can stop right there, Carrie. We're good. I'm good. I'm good right there. I don't want to talk about me. I've got enough ammo to go after everybody. Oh, no. Paul doesn't stop there. start there. Verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of your time because the days are evil. We need to understand that we need to check ourselves first. We need to judge ourselves first. Our human condition is that, that we will fall back into sin and sinful behavior. We need to check ourselves. Paul is literally saying, look before you step and conduct your life with wisdom. And to judge ourselves. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1-5 through 5 says this, Don't judge so that you won't be judged. For with the way that you judge others, you'll be judged, and by your standard of measure, it'll be measured back to you. So why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Before you go point, and it's much easier for us to point the finger at other people, isn't it? But we need to look at the mirror of God's Word and look at ourselves. The believer's behavior is essential to reflect God. You need to start with your behavior first. We need to check ourselves. And Paul's being making a point, how are you conducting your life? I love this verse where he says, Redeem the time because the days are evil. There's two words in Greek. Um, for time. One is chronos, and the other is kairos. Chronos is like, like 12, 1, 2, chronological time. Kairos is season. What Paul says here is buy back the season of your life. Why? Because you are living in evil days. We all have a season of life. You have a beginning and you have an end. How long is it? I don't know. For some people it's longer, for some people it's shorter. Do we know what our keros is? Absolutely not. I got called out last night, early this morning, on two people whose seasons of life ended. And with that, they knew that the end was coming. They were both on hospice, but others not so much. And we think about these seasons of our life. And the question, Paul says this, redeem or buy back that season because it's limited. What does he really mean with that? Life is a commodity. You have a limited amount of it. How you use it as a steward of God is up to you. God's given you stewardship of the season of your life. And what you do in that season is your responsibility. You can use it for the glory of God 
or you can squander it away. How you spend that season is imperative to understand that God has given you this season or this life as a gift. And he says, be a good steward of it. And then at the end of that season, you're going to go back before the Lord and he's going to say, okay, welcome. Let's see how you did. How'd you do in your season? How'd you do in your life? And I'm reminded of the parable of the talents and the parable of the minus. Some were given one, some were given five, some were given ten. But at the end of the day, the master said, let's take a look at what you did. And the one that had five, doubled it. The one that had ten, doubled it. The one that had one, said, I hit it. I said, you wicked servant. Took the one away, gave it to the others and said, throw this guy up. Because he did nothing with it. Nothing. You could have gave it to the bank and made some interest or something. But you sat on it. How are you going to spend your life? How have you been spending your life? The idea of redeeming the time means buy it back. Live with intentionality. And how do we do that? We follow the will of the Lord. Verses 17 to 21. Paul makes it clear what the will of the Lord said. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, God, you want me to buy it back. You want me to live. How should I live? He says, well, I'm going to give you the don'ts. I'm going to give you the don'ts. And, and understanding the will of God is making God's will your priority. And so within this, it's our behavior, it's understanding. And he says, don't make getting drunk a priority. Now, within this, we see this. He says, don't be drunk with wine for that's dispensation, but, but be filled with the Spirit. And speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your hearts. Now, while Paul is using alcohol in this, or this drunkenness of wine, what he's really saying is this. Don't be filled with the intoxicants of the world, but be filled with the Spirit, or the spirituals. God desires that we belong to Him, that we're filled with the Spirit, we're set apart for His purpose, that we submit to authority and government, to leaders of the church, and being thankful the foolish one is drunken by the things of the world so that it's dispensation. The word asotia in Greek, it means to live senselessly and recklessly. Don't be drunk, but be filled. You're going to be, in, you're going to be influenced by something. Are you influenced by the world or by the Spirit of God? You're going to be under the influence. What is the thing that is influencing you? For believers, we need to live that successful life spiritually influenced by God. You cannot be an imitator by, of Christ if you're influenced by the world. You can't. You're going to be led by one or the other within that. And the godly life is that expression of the Holy Spirit through us. And the behavior that is there. Being led by the Spirit. The last section that we'll cover briefly tonight, a passage that many of you are familiar with. That goes along with the believer's behavior, and it'll be followed up next week with the believer's behavior in, in other relationships. It's how you relate to one another. How should the believer relate to one another? Well, Paul in his writing, as he started with verse five or chapter five, verse one, and, and the whole concept of relationships and marriage and such, comes all the way back. You want to really test 
Yourself? Test yourself in how you relate to your spouse. You want to see the believer's behavior? Y'all are pretty good here. But again, what happens when you get home with the wife? Get home with the kids? And all of these things. In, in these verses here, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This passage is, is a powerful passage. We could preach a whole sermon on it. One of the things I want to bring to your attention before all you women start getting upset with me and say, there's that word submit. I don't want to submit. We'll touch on that. But women, you only get three verses, and men, we've got eight. So who's the real knucklehead in the group? But to the wife. The believer's behavior in the household represents. The word submit is not in verse 22. It's implied. Why? Because it's implied, it's stated in verse 21. That's key. The word submit is not in verse 22. It's implied. But in verse 21, it says, And be subject, hupotasso, submit, to one another in the fear of Christ Jesus, which means mutual submission, not one over the other. So why do people get so messed up? Because they don't like to submit because of pride. Now, the idea and the model of marriage is two becoming one, as we have said, all night. Founded in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to the wife, they two shall become one, fet, one flesh. How does one flesh work? Can you have two heads operating at the same time? No. You guys remember Dr. Doolittle? The push me, pull me? Yeah, it doesn't work. Two heads doesn't work. Hupotasso is a military term, which is the word submit. And it means structure or authority in order within this. And God had created order in this. Wives are to be subordinate to their husband while being led by the Spirit. Hupotasso. It doesn't make them any less of a person because God created men and women in His image. All men and women are image bearers. 
But Adam was created first. Eve was created second. In hupotasso, within this. While being mutually submitted together in one flesh, there's a structure that God had established within this. People read this through the lens of patriarchal order. It's not there. But it's spiritually subordinate in divine order. Where God says that the woman is to be subordinate to the man as the head in the same way that the Father is headship over the Son, Jesus, in the plan of redemption. So the Father sent the Son, the Son obeyed the Father, and was subordinate to the Father. Read John 17. Very clear. God established Hupotasso in this plan of redemption. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. Hupotasso. Is Jesus any less God than the Father? No, they're equal. But in order for, for function, function, there's hupotasso within that. And mutually submission. Mutual submission that's in this. Paul would write in Colossians 3.18, Wives, be subject to your own husband as fitting to the Lord. Does that mean that I submit into everything? If the guy is a jerk and is forcing me to sin, do I submit to him? Answer is no. Paul says in Colossians, as fitting as to who? The Lord. The standard is godliness. Women, you do not have to submit if your husband is a jerk. But it's got to be fitting to the Lord within that. And respect within this. One flesh put together. Mutual submission. There is a thing. Wow, we're... Okay, we'll get it. Because I do want to get to this. There are two views in the world today. What's, one is called complementarianism. One is called egalitarianism. Follow along. I know we've, we've gone a bit. But this is important. Complementarianism is the view that men and women are spiritually equal, but that have gender roles and social roles that complement each other. That's complementarianism. You follow. Spiritually equal, created in the image of God, right? Uniquely made to complement one another in Hupotasso and order. Egalitarianism views that men and women are equal in all aspects. Their roles are interchangeable. Women are never to be subordinate to the man in any aspect at all, including home and church and authority. That's egalitarianism. Now, the problem is, the Bible doesn't teach egalitarianism. It teaches complementarianism from creation all the way through within that. And so women are to respect their husbands as the church respects Christ, who gave his life. So you say, women, okay, well, what is the man's job? How is the believing husband supposed to act? Verses 25 to 33 
Paul covered this in, in such a way. He says, the husband is to love his wife the same way that Christ loved the church. Agape. Sacrificial love. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. This table is for you. To remind you of what Jesus did for you and where he gave his life for you. He sacrificed for you. Husbands, men, hear me clearly. You must, you must agape your wives and lay down your lives sacrificially. That they will benefit at the cost of you. At the cost of even your life to the point of death. The purpose of agape love was to make the church the holy bride presentable. It says without wrinkle. That's a wedding dress. Husbands, your job is to make sure that you are washing your bride with the Word of God. The word is rima. It means preach. Men, it is your job as the high priest of your home to wash. Not to preach at, but to use the Word of God to wash her. So that she would be a perfect, presented, holy bride before Christ. Men, you are spiritually responsible for the spiritual well-being for your brides. That is your job. That is your role. I've had women say, well, I would love him if he was more like Jesus. That's not what the text says. Give the respect. But men... You better start being more lovable and become more like Jesus and to love that wife. It's a spiritual mystery, Paul says. We don't know how it works where a man and a woman come together and they become one flesh. It's something that God does. We don't understand how the church becomes part of the body of Christ. That's something that God does. But the key phrase that we see in Matthew 19.6 says this, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Communion is based on that. The night before Jesus died, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He says, this bread represents my body given to you. And as often as you do this, remember me. What are we remembering? That I will never have to taste of eternal death because Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. And if you put your faith and trust in Him, those sins are wiped out. And I'm not going to remember Him anymore and God's not going to remember Him anymore because in all eternity they're all washed away. How? Because the blood of Jesus, represented by the cup, washes away our sins. In this flesh you're going to remember. You're going to remember all the stupid things you did. But every time you remember... And you get down over it. Remember the table. Remember the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross and he says, it is finished, it was done. That's what we celebrate. Worship team's going to come up and we're gonna, they're going to lead us in, in a song. Spend some time just really thinking about the love of God. The sacrifice that has been made for you. When you're ready, come up and you can take a piece of the cracker and the grape juice and then hang on to it till everybody's been served. If you've got sin in your life, though, don't take communion because it's out of relationship. Don't, don't be 
in a place where it's like I'm doing this because maybe it's going to make me feel better. Talk to God first. Take the time. Ask God to forgive you of that sin. And then celebrate the forgiveness through communion. God, I thank you for this time and I thank you that we can be in this place. God, that you can continue to give to us hope and and a promise. Lord, I ask that you would just lead us out even now as we worship you through communion and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way. 
stand before the Lord. God, you called us to be holy as you are holy. You called us to be righteous and light as you are light. In our human condition, we can't do that. But God, you've changed us. You've forgiven us of all our sin and unrighteousness. And when you look at us, you see us pure holy and right because we've accepted the forgiveness that's been offered to us. Tonight, Lord Jesus, we want to remember you. Your death, your burial, your resurrection, the pain and the suffering. We ask that you would bless this bread. Let's hold the bread up before God. God, we ask for your blessing upon this. Help us to understand what this really means. That, Lord Jesus, you sacrificed as as our loving husband. You purchased us from the depths of hell and the wrath of, of your Father by taking upon yourself the sin that was due us. And all you ask is for us to remember what you went through and to celebrate that. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this bread as a reminder that you gave to us. As often as we eat this, we'll remember you. We do so now. May you bless this bread to us as we partake it together. One body. You, Lord Jesus, is the head. In Jesus' name. Let's all take the bread together. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we look at the cup. I know it's red. It reminds us of what Scripture tells us that our sins were red as scarlet, that the blood of Jesus made them white as wool, washed them away. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this cup and the meaning behind it, that we are forgiven, that our sins have been washed away, past, present, and future, and that we are clean, and we are free, and whom the Son sets free, they're free indeed. We thank you for the price of this redemption, your blood, and how precious is the blood of Jesus. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Let's partake.
Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.